0: Labyrinths is brought to you by Knox Robinson Productions. Please consider becoming a patron. For as little as $5 a month, you can listen to Labyrinths ad-free.
1: Visit patreon.com slash Robinson to learn more.
2: What made you want to reach out to me?
3: I thought if anybody would understand, you would understand. That same mental fortitude that it takes to do one tiny humble thing each day to get through the day. And I really felt like you would empathize. And I actually didn't know that you had become a mom. Yeah. But I just felt like, I feel like women's stories in particular are important here. And especially as it comes to moms and the things that we will do for our kids, um, probably more than we will actually do for ourselves sometimes.
2: Oh, 100%. If my experience taught me anything and the way that my mom reacted to it, I know if she could have walked into that prison and switched places with me, she would have. Yeah. And so take me back. Tell me where your story begins.
0: Feeling lost?
1: Then you're in the right place.
0: I'm Amanda Knox.
1: And I'm Christopher Robinson.
0: And this is Is Labyrinths.
1: Last week, we brought you the story of Christian, whose life and mental health was disrupted by a bad reaction to cannabis. This week, we're talking about substance use from a different point of view.
0: Jennifer Lovely's two sons have struggled severely with addiction problems. That's been a challenge for her as a mother. But like many challenges, the roots go deep, all the way back to Jennifer's own childhood.
3: So. You know, a a bit of a dysfunctional family growing up. Not just a bit, but like a lot. (laughs) My stepbrother had molested me from the age of 7 to 14. At the same time, I was an elite soccer player. I traveled the world playing soccer. I had many friends. For all intents and purposes, I was really going somewhere in my life. And when I hit adolescence, my old trauma came up and I acted out quite a bit. And in that acting out, I met my children's father.
2: Hmm.
3: Interesting. Yeah. At the age of 17. And it was great. He was older. He was fun. He reminded me of my dad. I mean, it was just like, oh, this is perfect. And we went on a wild, you know, we're so in love. I don't know how he could possibly be in love with a 17 year old, but nonetheless, we had a good time and we had a couple kids. And Having my children and seeing what I had gone through, I was thinking to myself, I could never imagine doing that to my kids. My pain that I had was like loose power running around the world, right? It was shooting off everywhere. I was a big hot mess. I left my husband when I was 23 and had a high school education. And just was like, I'm just going to figure this out. And that was a struggle. It was a struggle for me and it was a struggle for the boys. There was a lot of moving and there was a lot of chaos. And I'm probably being harder on myself than maybe my kids would actually tell you. But it felt like chaos. Like when I look back, it felt like chaos.
2: I mean, it's hard to be a single mom oh my of gosh. two kids and yeah. on your own and so young. I can't even imagine.
3: Yeah, I was just trying to figure it out you're a kid yourself. Right. Yeah. Mm -hmm. We joke that we raised each other. So that really projected us into kind of a downward spiral. We're always climbing, trying to climb out of it and trying to climb out of it because I left my husband and he didn't want me to leave. It caused a lot of friction between us. And, um, there was a lot of hurt on both sides and, Um, my kids grew up seeing that anger and that hurt. They had a stepmom that told them that when they came to my house, that wasn't really their house, that kind of thing. And then I married a man who was incredibly, um, unkind and mean, and then that perpetuated more of it. And so there was just a lot of like, how do you have feelings when you have that kind of thing going on? You're just trying to survive. Yeah. They're just trying to survive. I'm just trying to survive. And for the most part, we did pretty well. And at the same time, I wasn't in the place that I could honor their feelings, that I could really be with whatever it was that they were experiencing. And that causes toxicity.
2: When did you first notice that your sons were struggling? 13, they were smoking pot. Hmm. So the first time you thought, okay, I'm a young mom, there's some chaos, um, there's some unkindness, there's some friction. But I think my kids are okay and they're surviving it until you've discovered them 13 smoking pot. pot.
3: Hmm. And there's a kind of a part of you that's like, well, we all yeah. mess around with pot here and there. Like when we're young, right? Do, mm-hmm. I, do I jump on them and give them a hard time about it or do I talk to them about it? hmm And what did you decide to do? I, I talked to them about it.
2: How did you talk to them about it?
3: I understand that you're smoking pot. Mm-hmm. I smoke pot at your age sometimes too. Hmm. I understand like these things will happen, you know, that kind of thing. We had very open conversations about everything, music, sex, drugs. It's one of those things too, where it's so important to talk to our kids about these things and not have a reaction. Why do you say that? Because kids are always looking for the reaction. As soon as the parent's like, what? You did what? course it depends on the kids but that neutral reaction oh that's really interesting is a different conversation than a what than a scared reaction
2: did you have a scared reaction at first or just an interesting reaction
3: a scared reaction at first what
2: were you thinking in
3: that moment i'm gonna get blamed
2: Hmm. Mm -hmm. by their father
3: yeah Hmm.
2: Mm -hmm. so he's gonna find out he's gonna blame me I'm going to be told once again that I'm a bad mom.
3: And what's also interesting is that my younger son, had I'd put him on an ADHD medication. I didn't realize that he would like the feeling so much. And so rather than holistically being with your kids, it was like, what's the easy fix? And there's nothing wrong with that. There's no judgment in that, that statement. But what I've learned over the last 10 years is that oftentimes we want to be out of pain so badly that we'll do anything to get out of that pain and if, even if that means let me give my kid this pill so he calms down
2: hmm. cuz that
3: will ease my pain yeah like breastfeeding right like it's like normal now to to feed the baby she's crying she's acting up but at a certain age we need to begin feeling our feelings
2: And so you talked to your sons, they denied it at first, but then they admitted it. And you started having an open dialogue with them about all of these sort of big ticket issues. How did those conversations go?
3: The moments that we could have them, they were great. They were really positive. We would have kind of philosophical conversations about them. What did you like about them? What did you not like about them? What did they do for you? Why does it feel good? That kind of thing, for sure. Did you know that they were doing harder drugs? No. And it wasn't until they started going to concerts that I started realizing that there was harder drugs.
2: What made you realize that?
3: Well, either I would pick them up from the concert and the way they looked, or my son would fall asleep in a sandbox. Or he would say, well, I couldn't make it home, so I slept in somebody's random person's car that he opened on the street. Wow. Like it, re- yeah, things progressed really quickly. And when your son said,
2: Oh, I just slept in a random person's car on the street, what do you say? <laughs> like,
3: <laughs> so I would have a reaction. Mm. My go to place would always be like, Okay, well, then you're going to be grounded and you can't go out. Gotcha. Because what you're trying to do is control, you're trying to manage this out of control situation. Hmm. And it wasn't something I could manage.
2: At that period of time, what was your understanding of what was required of you as a mother?
3: My understanding was I needed to keep my kids safe, fed, bathed, cleaned. Their emotional well-being needed to be, I needed to be with that at that time that the safety part and the fed part and all of that. Yes. But the other stuff was spiraling, like it was too big for me to hold on to. And how did you
2: feel that there was aspects of your son's experience in life that you couldn't control for them? What did you do with that
3: feeling? I stopped eating. I went to, I don't know, three to four yoga classes a day. I um, cried a lot and probably drank way too much wine.
1: A particularly bad day came when Jennifer's youngest son was turning 17.
3: His dad and him had been really butting heads. This is going to sound funny for a 17-year-old, but there was this crisis, the emotional crisis, that was really going on, almost existential for him, but he couldn't express it that way. And his dad just didn't understand. He's an old school. Do the work. Show up. Life is hard. Too bad. Let's do this. And it's your mom's fault if you have a drug problem. It was a lot of pointing fingers. And he had been getting into a lot of trouble. He just kept getting in trouble more and more. And he finally was arrested. And I had to pick him up in jail. And I said, you either go back and live with your dad or you go to rehab. And he said, I'm going to go to rehab. And I thought, oh. That makes sense. Like I, I could get that from him. And um, I dropped him off on his birthday and truly was like, take him off my hands, go get him better. And I'll pick him up when he's ready. Hmm. And what occurred though, was this huge life transformation for his mother. And it, it continued to occur throughout the next eight years because As he was going through that, his brother had dove into a very deep heroin addiction,
4: Mm.
3: although we hadn't figured that out yet. And basically, 16 rehabs, six jail stints, and um, a lot of pain, emotional pain, and a lot of financial pain. As it all began to unfold and unravel, my older son also got arrested for tagging buildings. And he was just on this downward spiral of, of just doesn't know what to do with them their, his, their lives. And, and based on our divorce, I had gotten the brunt of most of the, this is your fault. This is your fault. And I fled to Seattle and I said, I'm going to step out of this and I'm going to let them figure it out. And I remember walking around and getting a call and it was three o'clock in the morning in the U S and my boys were fighting. They were on heroin. They were running from the cops and life as I knew it was done. I was like, Oh, this is, this is serious. I flew home, tried to get my son in another rehab and. A month later, my older son called and said, Mom, I've been arrested. I need you to get a lawyer. I said, well, can you tell me, love, what you've been arrested for? He said, selling heroin to an underage girl. So he stayed in jail for, I don't know, five days, six days, and I bailed him out, which everybody tells you don't do. And he was looking at 10 years in prison. I couldn't breathe for those five days until he was out. Mm -hmm. my kids are super like happy jovial personable so my son walks out of prison or jail and he has 10 different phone numbers and he says I made a lot of friends (laughs) Mm -hmm. (laughs) and I'm like I'm so glad but could you please rip those up and could you (laughs) throw them away (laughs) and so he went into rehab and he was doing really really well and then my younger son Uh, threw his car over the 405 freeway and was in a ditch and then homeless. Wow. And then as my younger son started to get better, my older son relapsed and it became this circle of events that just continued and continued and continued. And at one point, Amanda, I was packing their bags so that they could go out and be homeless because they could no longer live with me and they could no longer live with their dad. And I was like, well, if they're going to be homeless, then they're going to have socks and they're going to have toothbrush and they're going to have all of the things that they need to survive. And I made a commitment to them that I would always come find them and I would just check on them and I would be there. And I did all the time. And sometimes when I flew down there, they would be homeless and I didn't know where they would be. And so it became this journey of chasing my children and they became my drug. Hmm. And they were just chasing their drugs. So it became this just cycle until finally I had to stop it on the same journey that they were on with heroin and methamphetamine. I was on the journey of what is this for me? What does this really mean for me?
1: Hey, listeners, thanks for tuning in. This podcast can only exist thanks to listener support. So please consider becoming a patron. Visit patreon.com slash Knox Robinson.
2: It sounds to me like the drug addiction and the drug rehab are like two sides of the same coin of this labyrinthine world of control and and helplessness. Tell me a little bit about that.
3: So you hand your kids off to rehab. When they're um, underage, the parents are basically going through the program with the kids. When they're overage, you drop your kids off and they just are there. I think it's incredibly um, helpful I think it's more for the parents than it is the kids at a young age. I learned so much in that rehab that I had never learned in real life. Like what? Like, why do I need to be in control? Why do I need to be helicoptering as a mom? What if I just said, this is your curfew. This is what we're doing. This and that. You can choose not to do it, but here are the consequences really just flat, like no problem. And then the consequences just come and then your kids just learn from their natural consequences. What kind of consequences? I mean, you choose like, okay, well, you know, give me your phone or, you know, you can't dry or that kind of thing. Right. It just becomes just real flat where in our house, I was reacting to everything that they were doing and sort of this sort of dramatic way. Maybe it would be screaming at them as if that got their attention. It didn't have to be that way. Just real flat. This is the way it is.
2: Calm, consistent.
3: Yeah, calm, persistent. But at the same time, it's kind of a place for them to babysit your kid. My youngest son didn't graduate from a regular high school. I mean, he graduated from a high school, but he didn't walk or do any of those things because he was in a rehab. And he'll tell you that that wasn't important to him. And I'm sure it wasn't. And at the same time, that place was just to monitor his behavior so he wouldn't kill himself. Were you afraid of that? Yeah, I really was. I spent a great deal of time thinking that he would either overdose or he had, I think, six car wrecks. So I was very um, concerned about that.
2: I mean, I could see it being very tempting to be a helicopter mom if you're afraid your kid's going to harm himself. Right. How do you get the strength to step away from that?
3: Well, one day I was working in downtown Seattle and he called and he said, Mom, I'm going to leave the rehab. Oh, no, I said, you can't do that. And he goes, well, I'm going to kill myself. And in that moment, I said, "Okay, I'm just going to have faith. But that if that's what you're going to do, then I'm going to ha- live with those consequences. The more I chased, the more he
2: ran. When you said, okay, how did he react? He
3: cried and he didn't leave the rehab.
2: Did you ever talk about that with him oh, afterwards? Oh, yeah.
3: We talk, we talk a, a lot about it. It was like there was nothing to push against anymore.
2: Hmm. Interesting. Yeah. How did your expectations of your sons and yourself shift over time?
3: Through the help of professionals. So I started realizing that my need to control them was really about me and not about them. How so? I wanted to be approved of so badly that I would do anything like chase their drug dealers down call their drug dealers confront their drug dealers I would follow them around check their text messages whatever hmm we call that codependency
4: hmm
2: so your the measure of yourself was your sons yes and because they were struggling it right. was a bad reflection of yourself
3: yeah, yeah. hmm Yeah. And it became like everything that they were or they had was an extension of me. Which is incredibly narcissistic, right? But I don't know that that was really actually what was happening. That's how I was coping with it. I think it's incredibly hard in communities right you're you're a community member and these things start happening your daughter goes to prison your kids are drug addicts it becomes like like what is wrong with me like how could i have raised this Mm. right so it became this story yeah that started building up inside of me so the pain of being shamed especially by the Christian people that I had in my life. And I don't mean that so meanly towards them, but they had a belief. People would also ask me, well, what did you do to make your children become heroin addicts? To be honest, Amanda, everybody should do a inventory of their life. What has happened and not happened in their life? I believe that. I think it's really, really courageous to be able to look at it as it relates to your kids and see you're human, right? Right.
2: Well, I definitely don't think it's a coincidence that, you know, I don't think a 20-year-old is a fully developed human being. So for you to be parenting as a 20-year-old, your sense of self was very much defined by your relationship with your kids, right? Yeah. 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 Were you ever thinking, oh, if only I had done this, or if only I had done that, things would have turned out differently.
3: I should have stayed with their dad. I should have gone straight to college. Why did I even have children? All of these questions started coming in and I really beat myself up. I would love to get to a place where like, I didn't still cry when I talked about it. But I'm not there yet. The grief is still there. And I'm not at all comparing my story to yours. But when you ask me, why would I want to ask or talk to Amanda? Because I felt like I was in a prison, Amanda. Yeah. That's what it felt like. You were trapped. I could move around, but I was trapped. Mm. Yeah.
2: Can you describe to me like just a day in the life like that?
3: Yeah. I would wake up in the morning and I would go, They're probably at chow and then they'll call me. So I'm going to make sure I'm home by this time so I can get the phone call. I could be in the middle of my studio with a client and I'd say, I'm sorry, I need to answer this phone call. It was all consuming. When I would go back to California and I'd visit friends or family members there, I felt so much shame. They would say, well, Jennifer, what do you think? Why? Why are your kids... And I would try to answer, but I didn't have answers for anybody. I had somebody say, I was at a grocery store and she said, look, my son's in prison. He made a stupid mistake. You just need to ignore them. You just need to move on with your life. And it was so like all of these different messages and really the AA community, they were wonderful. They told me I was wrong for bailing them out. They told me I was wrong for putting money on the books. They told me I was wrong for accepting the collect calls. And I couldn't give up on my kids. Couldn't ever. Yeah.
2: Did it feel like you had to give up in order to not give up? Like, is there that
3: weird counterintuitive? Yes. Yeah. I don't even know like the equation or how to even say it to make people understand that. Hmm. I've actually never had anybody say that to me in that way. But that's exactly what it was. Hmm. And sometimes I felt like I had to fake. Oh, yeah, I'm giving it up. I'm not doing it anymore. Because I didn't want the judgment. My kids are in jail and people are like, don't bail them out. And I'm like, well, okay. So I didn't after the second times. But there was just something in me that was like, my kids don't belong here. I don't care that they... Do heroin they don't belong here I deeply knew that my children were not heroin addicts and I deeply knew that I had to help them find a part of themselves that wasn't and I think we all need to know that there's other parts to ourselves mm-hmm. we all need that chance I went to visit my son in jail and I sat down and he said mom as soon as you pick up the phone we'll pick up the phone and we'll talk but when our time's up it's just gonna go dead so we won't be able to talk anymore so just so you know and I said okay so we're talking we're having a good time just trying to keep it light and it went dead and there was this moment we both put our hands on the plexiglass and we just said I love you And I had to just walk away in those moments. It's like if you don't have faith, what do you have?
2: When did things start shifting for the better?
3: So my younger son ended up in jail for residential, uh, breaking and entering, residential burglary. He didn't go in to steal anything. He thought he was back in a rehab and he had been on a five-day homeless streak where he was just walking around, nowhere to go. And he happened to walk into somebody's house and they ended up calling the police and the police came and got him and... He was looking at 10 years in prison as well. Just about then, my older son relapsed on heroin and he had several consecutive warrants. And so he was ending up back in jail. The PTSD I have from collect calls from prisons or jails is, it's like, I, I don't want to ever hear that again. Basically, they just got tired of it. They really got tired of it. I hired them a great attorney, and that was the final thing that I said that I was gonna do. I wasn't gonna send them to any more rehabs, I wasn't gonna help them in any way, they were gonna figure it out. And um and I got them a very expensive attorney and they got off and their life turned around. They mm-hmm. started working at rehabs, they started doing things for themselves, and that was the real shift. My older son, his shift, he was eating at homeless churches and soup kitchens and stuff like that. And that, I think, was a real eye-openers for them. Mm. Mm -hmm. So I think they just got tired of their own crap, quite honestly.
4: Mm.
3: And I was no longer placating. It was like, I believe you, I love you, and I believe in you, and... Let me know if there's some way I can support you, but it's not going to be monetarily or any of these other ways. Right. But, you know, Amanda, the biggest shift was I changed. I changed so much that there was nothing for them to push up against, but also they could see how I was really turning my life around. Hmm. I, I went from victim to being my own hero, in my own story, in my own life. I divorced the mean man. I just really changed everything about my, my life. It only takes one person to change.
2: That's fascinating. I mean, so, because, like, the thing that is, like, I'm thinking about now is, you know, a lot of people... Look with a lot of judgment on people who are going through these problems. And I think some of the first things that people think of is like, where is this person's mom? What is going on? Where is this person's mom? It's totally abandoned them. It's interesting to me that your whole life was like consumed by your son's, Mm -hmm. you know, issues and you're doing everything you possibly could and you were trapped in their sort of drama. But as soon as you stepped, away mm-hmm. and and focused your your life on yourself you became a model for them to become the protagonist in their own story
3: yeah hmm. yeah truly hmm. it was all the difference I mean we're so close now and not to say we weren't close before but it's different now hmm. it's like we're lifting each other up People were so judgmental of me and my story, even in my community. And I had so much shame. Mm. If I did any of the work, it was getting rid of the stigma and the shame. And that's what I really want people to know. Mm. And part of how I started doing that was you would ask me, so where are your kids? I'd say they're drug addicts and they're homeless right now. And it would shock people. Yeah. But I would do it on purpose so I could get rid of that shame. Hmm. So that I didn't have to make up stories. I wanted to live a free life. And that wasn't free.
2: Yeah. I'm really captivated by this idea that you had to show them that there was another part of them. Mm -hmm. How did you show them that?
3: Well... By this time, you know, I was already a yoga teacher, Pilates teacher, and I had become a coach. I had gone back to school, got my degree when I was raising them and everything, but I had gone back because I really deeply wanted to be with humans and their story and changing their story in their head. And so I had these tools and when I would come and visit, we would talk about ways that they could change the story. Hmm. And we just had very deep conversations about shifting the narrative. Just because you had this experience doesn't mean that it has to be that way forever. Mm. Right. And so it was, I know you have three, four five felonies. Let's go do an interview anyways. Oh, you got turned down. That's okay. We're going to keep going Mm
4: -hmm.
3: every day, continually.
4: Mm.
3: And just today, my son called and said, I'm not very fulfilled in my life, mom. And so we talked about what it would mean for him to be fulfilled. And what does that look like? What is the feeling and what is the texture? And Um, And getting them in touch with those parts and also getting them in touch with their little boys Hmm. so they could remember what it was like to be free. And so to get that perspective, did you have to
2: find that for yourself first? Yes. How did you do that?
3: A lot of therapy, a transformational breath is a a beautiful way of transforming your relationship to old trauma or old stuck stories. Hmm. Um, So a lot of breathing, a lot of movement, and really tapping into the humanness of me rather than just the adulting side of me. And I Hmm. think that distinguishing those two things are really important. Tell me more. Well the human part of us is this creative, playful, curious, like we're loaded with all of these really beautiful gifts. Mm -hmm. But we find ourselves stuck in the adulting, pay the bills, take the kids here, do this, do that. Right. And we get pushed down. Like, you know, we think it's what we want, buy the house, have the 2.5 kids, the dog and the cat and the whole thing. And while that is true, we forget about being human. We forget about the creativity. We forget about allowing our brain to really explore, allowing our body to explore, practicing things that we really love. Hmm. And I started doing that a lot because I didn't do any of that through my late teens and twenties. I was raising kids. Yeah. How did you get into yoga? Um, I started with Pilates. I have lupus, which is an autoimmune. Disorder, and it was a way to an alternative way to start feeling better in my body, and so that's how I began doing that. And then, really, it has evolved from coaching and yoga at the same time. So, the idea is that we process through what you want to create, where you are, where you're stuck, and then we process it through the body so it can actually move through the body because we are the only mammals that do not shake off our trauma. Why do you
2: think that is? Is it because the thing that really traps us isn't even the physical addiction, it's the stories we tell ourselves? Yeah. Tell me about that.
3: Well, the physical addiction it is is a real thing. We're more addicted to the habit of it, right? A dog doesn't have the brain to think about why a wolf or something tried to bite it. It just ran, got away, shook it off, and it doesn't live in the memory anymore. It doesn't have the intellectual processing.
0: Hmm. We
3: have to intellectualize everything, which keeps us from actually feeling. From being present. and being present in our bodies. Hmm. And I believe that our bodies are the last frontier to really heal. Because it holds all of the memories. And so this way, the body has an opportunity to move through as you process it. And it's not going to hold on to it
4: Hmm.
3: and won't stay in that memory. And the other piece of it is that when we're young, our parents' nervous system is how we calm ourselves. That's what we know. So if mom's nervous system is calm, then my nervous system is calm. And if we had a chaotic family life, our nervous systems are totally jacked. Hmm. So we have to rewire them. Hmm. And that movement is actually also part of rewiring the nervous system.
2: Interesting.
3: Yeah. You're saying that from a young age,
2: your kids were picking up on the energy that was around them from the all the adults in the room. Yeah. And that energy was fraught. Yes. Yeah. And so they carried that with them and they tried to dull that feeling, feeling. through drugs. Mm-hmm.
3: Where are your sons today? Really well. Orange County, California. One has a baby, so I'm a grandma. Congrats. They're both installing elevators into homes. And, um, they're doing really well. Do they work together? Mm -hmm. Oh, that's great. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Are they feeling things now?
4: Mm -hmm.
3: How so? Just like today when my son called me and said, I don't feel like I have much meaning in my life and I want something different. He called when father's day came and went and he didn't feel that he was seen as a father. He really Mm. had deep emotions. My older son, his company wants to move him to San Francisco. He's so excited, right? He's like feeling that. And he's doing all of this without drugs or alcohol as a part of it. He's Mm -hmm. managing the stress. His girlfriend's brother recently passed from a heroin addiction. And he called me and he said, mom, gosh, I just hate this drug. And he was crying and he was so sad. He's really able to experience emotions differently. And they can express it in a way that's really beautiful. And they say things like, oh, it's okay. You're just human. That's really good awareness. Things that 26, 24-year-olds don't really normally talk about in that way. They have a vocabulary now that and an understanding. And they'll talk sometimes maybe about their dad. Or And I'll say, well, you know, I don't think he really has the capacity to be feeling that. Can you appreciate that? Oh, you know what, mom? I didn't even think about that. So we're having these dialogues that are much bigger than their age.
4: Mm.
3: It's like a miracle to be here. That's how I feel. And to not be in this prison. And that's why I talk about it. And I want to talk so openly about it because it keeps me out of it. And I hope that I can help somebody else that, you know, going through this experience or even something else.
2: So what do you think People need to understand about being a mom that you've discovered along the way.
3: Deep forgiveness for themselves. We're going to make mistakes. Have hard conversations with your children. If you don't talk about sex with your kids, somebody else will. If you don't talk about drugs with your kids, somebody else will give your kids drugs to try. Be the one that has the hard conversations, love them, believe in them, like deeply believe in them. There is something in everybody's children that is a light focus on the light, Hmm. talk to them, like deeply talk to them, ask them like, this is kind of a big word, but understand their personal padlock what really gets them moving? What really is their juice? Be in that conversation. And it's great to have your children involved in sports or activities, but not so much that there's not downtime for your children. And I say that because my kids were going from basketball to baseball football sometimes all in the same day and it's exhausting. Mm-hmm. We think we're like keeping our kids busy but we need time to process
4: mm-hmm.
3: And so give our give your kids that and then spend time with them not about school, not about sports not about you know extracurricular activities just spend time with them and like get on the ground with them and play. Get curious and allow yourself to be a kid too.
2: So basically show them how to be present by being present with them. Yeah. What about that paradox of letting go in order to not let go?
3: Like Mm -hmm. how, like, what is that? (laughs) I wish I knew, like, I wish I knew, I'm sure there's a, a roomy quote about it, but to become unattached, you have to not attach, right? Like you have to attach, but not attach. (laughs) You have to like be there and not be there, right? I don't know the exact, like the thing, but I will tell you, the more you push with your kids, the more they turn away from you. Hmm. So can you give them options and allow them to choose? And you be okay in the choice whatever it is whatever it is and they're not going to always choose well like allow your kids to have the natural consequences to their choices and natural consequences looks like getting a speeding ticket looks like oh i hit somebody with my car looks like i have to work to pay for you know the damage parents today in my opinion we want to keep our kids from any consequences Because we don't like the pain that it causes. Mm. And I'm here to tell you, allow it. Because the pain that you don't allow them now will come later. Hmm. Not always, but sometimes.
2: Yeah. Tell me about the process of rewriting your own story. What kind of character were you? And how did you change that narrative for yourself?
3: Yeah. Hot mess character. (laughs) I changed the narrative by learning to trust myself, by small acts that I promised myself and and doing. I changed the narrative through healing, through processing the painful emotions of abandonment and the painful emotions of being um, a young girl touched in ways that were so uncomfortable and perverted. I joke Amanda, that based on my family, I should have been a crack whore on the street. And there's nothing wrong with crack whores, by the way. I'm just saying. And I didn't do it. I didn't end up there. I knew there was more out there. I didn't actually know what the more was, but I kept fighting for the more that was out there. Hmm. And really, what it was is my sovereignty, really, the freedom inside of myself that I could go through all of the things that I went through and that's actually not who I am. Those things happened, but they are not who I am.
1: As new parents ourselves, we're trying to implement the lessons Jennifer learned the hard way. But it's hard to let go of the notion that we should protect our kids no matter what to accept that sometimes the best thing to do is stand aside while they harm themselves. That may just be the cost of resilience and self-esteem.
0: And it's never too late to develop those qualities. Jennifer and her sons are proof of that. We're all capable of rewriting our narratives and changing our lives.
1: So we encourage you to ask yourself what story you're living, what character you're playing, and whether that narrative is healthy and fulfilling.
0: In the meantime, get lost with us. Find us on Twitter, at Amanda Knox.
1: At Man Under Bridge.
0: And if you're struggling with a labyrinth addiction, may we suggest coming clean about your feelings with a five-star review on Apple Podcasts.
1: This episode was written and produced by us and Sophia Gates, with editing and sound design by Josh Thane and theme music by Josh Carp.
0: These aren't the ads you're looking for.
1: These aren't the ads we're looking for.
0: This podcast is listener supported.
1: This podcast is listener supported.
0: Visit patreon.com slash knoxrobinson.
1: Come on, boys, let's visit patreon.com slash knoxrobinson. <laughs>